Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Rettiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Bob Balaban, who is a well-known actor and an Academy Award nominee. That must have been a disappointment. (laughs) Well, uh, it was a little more boring than I thought it would be, but it was fun. I was uh, looking through all the films that uh, you made and The ones I wanted to talk about briefly were three in particular uh, because of uh, what they sort of have in common, which was, and you'll you'll think I'm kidding when I tell you, Mighty Wind, Close Encounters, and when you were uh, on Seinfeld. You were uh, the president of NBC on Seinfeld. Yes. You were were an interpreter on Close Encounters. Yeah. And you were a folk singer? No. Uh, I was the boss. I was the boss's son, and the boss had recently died. Did you say A Mighty Wind? Is that what I we're talking did. about? It's, it's yeah. stuck in my mind, that movie. No, there, there were a lot of folk singers, but I introduced them and tried to make things be okay. Well, the, the thing they have in common is that you are somebody else and nothing like any of the others when you're, you're in the role of pretty major changes in disguise or however you want to look at it. And I, I just thought it was kind of interesting. And I wanted to ask you in particular about Close Encounters, because in that movie, you um, you were into facing with Steven Spielberg and you wrote, you wrote a book about it. And uh, so I thought maybe that would be a good starting point. Well, just you'll just have to shut me up because I have a lot to say about it. But it was a really wonderful experience. If it went on for three years instead of seven months, I would have been quite happy. And it was great being and seeing Stephen, and it was great uh, getting to meet Francois Truffaut and spending days and days and days with him, sort of locked in our pod that we were locked in for a large part of the movie. Uh, And as it turned out, I was the only person around him except for his official translator uh, who spoke French. So we got to talk all the time and my French got a lot better. But when, when I auditioned for that movie, I really sounded like I could speak French because my accent was really good, but I hadn't actually spoken or had anything to do with French since my senior year in high school. And this was by now about 14 years later. So I went to the audition and they, they specifically said, now, you know, Steven Spielberg is interested in you doing this, but uh, do you speak French? And I said, yeah, no, I speak really good French. But I didn't. I don't know what I was thinking, uh, which is not uncommon of actors sometimes. So I get to the audition and they say, now say a little. And I said, say something in French. And I said, il y avait beaucoup d'années depuis que j'ai parlé français. Si vous me donnez ce boulot, ce sera très difficile pour moi. Which translates as, it's been many years since I've spoken French. And if you give me this job, it will be very difficult for me. And they said, great, you're in. in." Um, When you say you were in, tell us about what the job of the interpreter was and uh, who you were interpreting for. Because I, I, I saw the movie, but I, I was struck well, by it. 
It's good that you can't remember it because it wasn't supposed to be obtrusive. Basically, I was Truffaut's interpreter, which made me his kind of, as a character, his babysitter, because I had anything anybody was saying in English that was important, I had to immediately say to, trans to, uh, to translate into French for Francois. And if Francois said something in French, I had to translate it in English to the rest of the people. And then Francois, originally our characters, would speak privately to each other since nobody else could speak French. We could say, you know, we, we had our own little dialogue going on. But because we didn't make a big deal out of it, it was just kind of, you get, you get used to it. It's like... What was his role in the movie? Well, I think he was a scientist. It's interesting. It was a long time ago. I can't quite remember why he was there, except he was tremendously empathetic, his character, and Francois as well. And I think... I think I think Stephen hired him for this part because he had seen him be in La Combe Lucienne, and the character's name was La Combe in the movie, which I think he did on purpose, I, I'm not sure. But he needed somebody with great humanity, who I think, I, think his actual, I think his actual profession, which we didn't go into particularly, was that he was some form of scientist, because uh, everybody was except for me. I was just a, an interpreter. Where do you live out here? Well, I, I live in Bridgehampton. Uh, I've been out here for about 20 years. Uh, I commute to the city when I need to and spend some time there, but the majority of my time is out here, unless I'm away working, which some years I'm away all the time working, and other years I'm staying at home getting ready to work. Why did you uh, choose Bridgehampton? Well, it's a, it's a good question. My first real experience in the Hamptons was when my older daughter was about... 40 years ago when my older daughter was just a baby and uh, we decided to come rent a house out here and we rented the same house about oh it's about a half a mile from where I'm living right now where I built my house and I think this may be true of many people in the Hamptons there's so many great places to live that often we fall in love with I think we we fall in love with with the place we went to first so what, what was a very simple house that didn't appear to be anything earth-shattering. We fell in love with the house that we had rented for 10 years, actually tried to buy it, they wouldn't sell it. And um, when we went looking around to buy a house, it just seemed natural that we would be in this same area of Bridgehampton. And, uh, and it's true, I, I, I do love being here. I love the fact that there are still some, are some wide open spaces. You can hardly call it a town. You could call it a tiny little village of Bridgehampton. I love it. I love the few restaurants that are there. The stores are great. And, um, and I like being here. I'm very glad I, I ended up being here. It was sort of a midway point for the other two towns. And I don't know if you remember this. You may not have been here this far back, but there were seven gas stations in Bridgehampton. Seven gas stations? Yeah, over by the mall. Uh, the one um, across from Candy Kitchen, there was one across from my office at Dance Papers in Bridgehampton. There was uh, one on the front lawn of that mansion in the corner in town. And the one, one that they redid finally. Yeah, and the, and which they're still doing, redoing. Right. And the other one was across the street, uh, which was falling apart, became a uh, bottle bottle store. Well, the kid became a bottle store, and now it's now it's offices. Yeah. And then there was another one. Um, well, I think that's seven or six. Oh, there was one right next to Dan's papers. Oh. It was all about potato farming. And uh, the town was surrounded by potatoes. And uh, they had a big, a big amount of work to do 
repairing things and storing cars and stuff like that. It's that's what I moved here for. Uh, and then, of course, there was Bobby Bands and all right. that. Well, what, so, what I always I always used to say, tell people when they said, "What's Bridgehampton?" and I said, "Bridgehampton began as the, as servicing East Hampton and Southampton, so it it had food, it had a lot of things, but it was right. not meant, it was not meant for fancy people to live in, which right. I suppose is one of the reasons I feel more comfortable here." Talk about Gosford Park, which I did not see. What is that? Gosford Park was a movie that Robert Altman directed. Robert was a friend of mine. It was based on an idea that I came up with sitting alone in my office going, what can I do next year? Let's see what we can have happen here. And I just came up with a simple idea that there would be, frankly, I had been, I had been reading some murder mysteries, an Agatha Christie murder, murder mystery. And I said to myself, well, I know Robert well enough to know Robert Altman that he never likes to visit the same location twice. I don't just mean literal location, but... He'd never really done a movie in London before with a lot of high-class people. In fact, he didn't really like high-class people very much. So I came up with a simple idea. It would be a weekend in the country. It would be in 1934. Uh, there would be a lot of fancy people, and there would be a staff downstairs. So in a way, the movie is upstairs, downstairs, with a murder mystery embedded in it. And Robert liked the idea, and I found an unknown writer named Julian Fellows, uh, who, would, as far as I know, had never really sold anything or done anything too much but i could tell instantly that he was great i saw a script he had written on spec and we hired julian and then julian that that became julian became the toweringly successful and rightly so julius sir julian fellows but but he wasn't when we started why do you think it rose to uh, get an academy award i think Rob, all of robert altman's movies were special but this was special in a way that reached, seemed to reach out to, to a greater number of people. Uh, the way in some of the Chris Guest movies, uh, the dog show movie, Best in Show, was in the box office the most successful of them. And yet the, the diehard fans loved all of them. Altman's fans loved all of his movies. But I think, I think Gosford Park brought in just a wider audience because you could tell from the preview that it was accessible, it was glamorous, it was different. You know, because don't forget, a lot of Robert's movies were specifically not glamorous. And the first thing Robert said to me when I began talking to him about it, in fact, I only came to him with a murder mystery with the rich people. And he said, but I don't really like those characters. Uh, I like the people downstairs. And I said, well, let, let's, let's have it be upstairs, downstairs, and we'll, con we'll concentrate equally on the downstairs characters and the upstairs characters. And indeed, when the movie started being cut, Robert reminded me that when you have two different stories going on upstairs and downstairs, you always have something to cut away from if you want to get out of a scene, if you want to advance time. It's much easier to cut, and it gives a great feeling of a three-dimensional world. And it was great fun to make. We had the, the, the best of British actors in it. I was the only, I was to be the only American actor. I played the American movie producer who was sort of a, a clod, and uh, Ryan Phillippe played somebody who was pretending to be British and is revealed at the end by Maggie Smith to not be British, and I think she throws a drink in his face or something like that. But it was an amusing movie, it was touching, it, it was gorgeous to look at, and it really caught people's interest. And, I, and other than that, I don't know why it was nominated, but people seemed to love the movie. You've done so much, uh, many movies. Which 
which one stands out in your mind? Maybe not because it was so successful, but maybe because it wasn't so successful. There are two, I have to do a double thing. First of all, I tend to enjoy myself most of the time, but Close Encounters, which we've already mentioned, so I won't dwell on it. In terms of life experience, forgetting the fact that the movie at the time was the highest grossing movie, which soon it wasn't, then I think, I think Star Wars became higher or something. But I loved being with the people. I loved seeing Stephen, my friend Richard Dreyfus was in it, so I saw Richard all the time. I was friends with, with everybody in it. And I got to know, in a real way, one of my favorite directors in the world who happens to be a great person. He died only 10 years after, the, after we did the movie. He was only 50 when he died, Francois. But to, to have months and months sitting around with a person who can only talk to you, who is filled with interesting stories about life, about movies, insights into some of my favorite French films that he had made. Uh, it was just an outstanding experience. I loved it. Being in Mobile, Alabama, which is where we were the most, wasn't that exciting. But we were on set most of the time. You wrote The Creature from the Seventh Grade and other children's books. Yeah, I, 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 I wrote a treatment for a, a kid's movie uh, called McGrawl, based on a little boy who'd always wanted a dog and his parents wouldn't let him get a dog. And I sent the treatment to Scholastic because they had a little tiny movie division, although they did have the giant Harry Potter series. Basically, they didn't really make movies. They said to me, well, we really like what you've written here in this 80-page treatment, but we would like you to write a series of six books based on this character. We'd like to make a few changes. We'd like to have the leading character be a boy, not a girl. We'd like the dog not to be <laughs> black mud. We'd like the dog to be a golden retriever. But, uh, but the heart of this book, we think, would be very successful. And I wrote it, and it sold several million copies. And um, then, then I went back to not being a writer after that. What Although, was... And I, I did write a series called The Creature from the Seventh Grade, which actually was a, a rather fun and nice book. But the mysteries of publishing, like one person bought the book. So we only did three of them. We didn't do six of them. What was the creature? The creature was a harmless little boy who was the most unpopular boy in his class who turns into a dinosaur, a rather small dinosaur. You know, he was, he was small enough to fit into school, but other than that, he was a dinosaur. And it was all about being different, and it was, um, and it was sweet, and people liked it, but not enough people to make us have a lot of them. Are you working on this, uh, anything right now you can talk about? Well, the simple thing I'm working on is, is, a, is a reading that we're showing on Sunday evening uh, for Guildhall called Squeaky. It's, it's, it's a new play. It's a first draft of a play that has gr really great and interesting things in it. And it, you sort of get to have a peek at a, at a play in, in the works, so to speak. Uh, and I'm doing that, which is occupying all of my time, but for only about three or four days, so it's not that much time. Uh, I happen to have just done a series for Netflix. It's a limited series. There are seven of them. These episodes, I did it in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is just far enough away to be difficult to get to and, and, and to not be able to come back and forth when you want to. But other than that, I had a great time. I can't really say anything about it because it's for Netflix and they don't like people to know what's happening until it's closer <laughs> to the, when the movie is going to come out because they don't want the people to get tired of it, uh, which is probably a smart thing. And now that the pandemic is, well, we can't say it's lifted, but we can say, at least for television, the pandemic is being 
is, is being coped with. Because as you probably know, for nine months, 10 months, nobody shot a movie here. Nobody made a television show. Nobody made a television series. There were a lot of attempts to do Zoom things, which don't make money, but that do keep people employed, at least artistically. Um, but television now is, I, I don't have a real percentage, but it's at least 50% returned in terms of new productions. So it's, it's, it's coming back to life. I never thought it would. But they, the Screen Actors Guild has a set of protocols for, for dealing with COVID. Uh, nobody got sick on the production I just did. I'm doing another little small production next week in New York. Everybody gets tested a lot. Um, they, they've got a system of who gets near people and who has to stand back. We always wear double masks, and then we, when we're shooting, we obviously take our masks off, but we don't spend extended time without masks on. We have ventilation. There are HEPA filters everywhere. And so far, anecdotally at least, and my own experience, is that the, uh, there hasn't been a lot of uh, infection going on in these carefully watched over programs. And it's encouraging because uh, it's hard not to work for a year when you're used to working a fair amount. Sure is. Okay. And I want to thank you very much for coming on my podcast, Bob Balaban, Academy Award nominee and great actor that has done The Mighty Wind, which all of you remember, I'm sure. Well, it's great to see you. Lovely to talk to you. And I, I love your paper. I'm very happy it's there. And I'm very happy it's enduring during this difficult time. So congratulations. Thank you, sir. Great. Bye-bye.